more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, all you happy warriors. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Thanks for being part of the show, and thank you so much for helping to tell other people about the show. You're doing an absolutely bang-up job on that because our numbers just keep rising and rising, which fills me with delight and enthusiasm and propels me to higher efforts. And um, at the same time, it makes it possible to do more on the show as well. So I very very much appreciate all of that. And, of course, when I think of you all as happy warriors, it doesn't mean that I believe you're all walking around with inane grins on your faces and clown hats on your head and jumping up and down in demonstrations of being happy. No, when I think of you as happy warriors, I'm fully aware that uh, much of the time you are fighting. You are warriors. Uh, You're dealing with the realities of making a living. You're dealing with the realities of family relationships. You're dealing with the realities of of faith matters. Uh, You're dealing with challenges on many different areas that I can only but think of. And uh, in spite of that all, you are filled with a deep sense of happiness. I'm not going to say contentment because contentment is what you find in that admirable creature, the cow, in a sunny, grassy meadow on a fine day. And uh, and the cow can safely be said to be content. Uh, I don't think we human beings ever want to be content, but we do want to be happy. And happiness is not an external matter. It is an internal matter. I think many of you have already heard me talking in the past about the time I I must have been eight, maybe eight years old when uh, my mother uh, didn't like the way I was whining around and, and sulking around and she stopped doing what she was doing and she said, now stop that, you've got to be happy now. And I said, well, if you want me to be happy, get me a motorcycle. And at that point, there was a whack, whack. And um, I walked around with uh, the mark of four fingers on my cheek for the next few hours. Uh, She wasted no time letting me have it. And after I had recovered from the absolute shock of being slammed on the side of the face like that, my mom took no nonsense or prisoners. she then explained that my happiness is not her responsibility, it's my own responsibility. And that's really uh, what we're talking about here. We are uh, engaged in challenges. We are constantly trying to overcome tribulations and to triumph. And uh, none of that is easy, but happiness is a prerequisite for the fight. That is what I mean by calling you happy warriors, which I do with enormous respect and considerable affection. Now, the State University System of New York 
is a huge educational institution. Um, it involves well over half a million students. It's about 600, over 600,000 students. Do you know how many professors and teachers and faculty members? Nearly 90,000. Can you imagine? I mean, is this a good thing? <laughs> well, wait and listen and you'll, you'll make your own mind up. Uh, the most important, the flagship campus, it's got four main campuses, uh, the state university system in New York, which I think is the biggest state uh, university system in the United States. And uh, um, it's, uh, it's got four uh, main universities, Albany, which is the state capital up the Hudson River, uh, Binghamton, uh, then it's got a campus at Buffalo, and maybe the flagship is called Stony Brook on Long Island. So it's the one that's nearest to Manhattan and uh, and certainly I think the one they consider to be very, very important, very central. And uh, they graduate a huge number of students that pass through the system. Well, they have a professor of economics. Uh, she's a woman who ranks fairly high in the university. Her name is Stephanie Kelton. Uh, she looks, you know, she's probably about 50 or thereabouts in age. And uh, I, I hope she's not like really 40 and listening to this and, and gets very irritated at me. But uh, all I can say is that if she does get irritated at me for that, it will soon shrink into insignificance with how annoyed she'll be at me with what I now have to say. Well, it turns out that uh, Stephanie Kelton at uh, uh, New York State University at uh, Binghamton, uh, excuse me, at Stony Brook, says uh, the, the following. This is, this, it started off as a tweet on her Twitter feed, but uh, I followed it up thereafter, and this turns out to be very much a part of her thinking. As a matter of fact, she actually was the chief economist uh, for the Democrats on the U.S. Senate Budget Committee. So she's, uh, she's pretty influential. She, her word is taken to be, if you'll pardon me, gospel, and here is the short message she communicated on Twitter. As I say, it was not hard to follow this up and discover that this theme reoccurs in her lectures and in her writings and in her television appearances uh, regularly, frequently, and repeatedly. But here are the exact words she used. No one makes, emphasized, no one makes a, million, a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars. You take it from your workers. Hi, Jeff, Jim, and Alice. You plunder it from the environment. What's up, Charles and David? You strip it using patents and protections. Looking at you, Bill. And it's signed Stephanie Kelton, Professor of Economics and Public Policy, University, State University of New York at Stony Brook. Um, okay, no one makes a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars. You take it from your workers. Um, Jeff, and I think that means Bezos. I don't know who Jim means to, but somebody she loathes. Alice, I'm thinking maybe Alice Walton from the Sam Walton Wal Walmart family. Uh, you plunder it from the environment. What's up, Charles and David? She probably means Charles and David Koch, the Koch brothers. Uh, you strip it using patents and protections, and that's looking at you, Bill, and she means Bill Gates on that. And uh, this, look, 
Uh, no one makes a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars. I don't think that you would um, make a very big distinction. If you are Stephanie Kelton, not a big distinction between a billion or a million or a hundred thousand or a thousand or a hundred dollars. She would also say no one makes a hundred dollars. You take a hundred dollars. You take it from somebody. And this is at the heart of a fundamental conflict between the two sides in the culture war striving for the future of America. Indeed, do you take money or do you make money? And if you've got a lot of it, and the reason she wouldn't have focused her ire on the $100 or the 1000 is because those are the people who are being exploited by everyone who has a million or a billion. That's how she sees it. And so this uh, great culture clash that divides the nation, and it is the most important division in the nation, uh, in spite of President Obama's best efforts to create racial war in America, the, uh, the, the clash in America is not between people with black skin and people with white skin. And it's not between men and women, and it's not between rich and poor, although uh, people like Bernie Sanders and a number of his colleagues in both the Democratic House and the Democrat, among the Democrats in the Senate are doing everything they can to turn it into a class war. But the reality is that this actually is a very helpful, specific way of identifying the contrast between these two worldviews. Do you make money or do you take money? And any time you have more than a certain amount that those on the left consider to be, oh, morally defensible, well, then you didn't make it for sure. You take it. And uh, if indeed you do, then you should be very embarrassed. You should be ashamed of yourself. And sure enough, that's why it is that it is not hard to find a slew of articles out there stressing how little money people like uh, Jeff Bezos and Michael Dell are giving out. You should give more money like Bill Gates because they have every right to tell you that you must give away more of your money because they are offering you moral rehabilitation. There's obviously so much wrong with you morally in having it in the first place that they're helping you by guiding and advising you on how much to give away, whom to give it to, and uh, how to do so. Now, uh, obviously, guilt would then be a part of having a lot of money. And sure enough, it turns out that many of these captains of com commerce and, uh, and these people who have achieved great financial heights Many of them are indeed very guilty feeling about it all, which is why they overwhelmingly support the left. Would you believe that the city of Seattle, in which I retain a special interest, uh, did its best to implement and actually did a head tax where companies with more than a certain number of employees will pay a tax for every employee they have? In other words, 
even hiring people and giving people jobs is a reason to tax you. You are such a hateful, loathsome person for having so much money. Well, uh, although later on um, Amazon did tell the city of Seattle that they would move if that uh, tax was kept in place, and the city backed off and undid it. But in the early phases, the support for the politicians that brought about that tax was full from Amazon uh, executives and Amazon leadership. So they lean to the left, it would appear, in order to uh, morally justify their wealth. Because if you're on the left, it shows you are a good human being. And this is one of the huge challenges facing conservatism as a political doctrine because conservatives have pretty much lost the war, the war of philosophical ideas, in the sense that uh, they have done nothing to stop the population believing that to be conservative is to be selfish and greedy. But to be a liberal, to be a socialist, to be a Marxist, to be left-leaning shows that you care. Now, all of this is very relevant to some of the things I've been looking at. Um, Recently, just a few days ago, Susan and I had a cause to talk to a young lady. Um, she is a, she's a, a lovely young woman. Uh, how old would she be? I don't know. Probably, I'd say she's not 30, under 30. And uh, she is um, born in America. Her parents are both Chinese ethnically. Her father was born in America. Her mother immigrated from Gongshao in uh, China in uh, when she was 17 or 18. And, um, and this young woman is one of, uh, I think, four siblings. And uh, she became a psychologist. And then, so she became a therapist after she graduated as a psychologist. She became a therapist in the public school system, um, taking care of the mental challenges and behavioral problems of the children. Well, uh, she did that for a while, uh, quite a while, and then she tells us she just burnt out. She just plain burnt out, and she felt she had no alternative. She had to do something else. She also wanted to make a little bit more money, although she felt uh, very unworthy in having that thought. So she uh, moved into one of the professions that I think very highly of, which is the profession of sales. And she moved into car sales. And she said um, of the uh, four people that joined the dealership at the same time she did as trainee uh, car sales professionals, uh, the, three of the three others quit quite early. One was let go. She said because he, he knew it all. The sales manager felt he couldn't teach him anything. Uh, she uh, stuck it out. And my goodness, she's so professional about it. She's so good at it. She's so meticulous. And whether it's uh, because she's a woman or whether it's because of her psychology training, she is uh, super sensitive to, to the customer. And this is something that, I mean, anybody in sales has to acquire the ability to do, to, to have a sense of what sort of people you're dealing with. Do they, what, what sort of, what would make them most comfortable? 
She learned all she could about the brand of car she was selling. She became very knowledgeable. And as you know, I'm, I'm something of a car enthusiast, so I was happy to talk cars with her. And uh, she was very knowledgeable indeed. Extraordinary. She's been, uh, she's been at this job for only two years, and she's doing really well. And I really understand why. And so in conversation uh, with me and with Susan Lappin, um, at one point, talking about her transition, we'd asked her a lot of questions, talking about her transition from school psychologist to a star salesman on the floor of this dealership, uh, she mentioned how guilty she was feeling, that she moved from where she was really helping people to where she was just making money selling cars. Now, my friends, you probably know me well enough to know that I was not able to restrain myself upon hearing that. And, uh, and, and I saw Stu Susan sitting alongside me uh, stiffened it as, at that as well. And we both almost simultaneously said to her, uh, and I, I don't want to mention her name on the air, but uh, we both said to her, but look, aren't you helping us? Why, why are we talking to you? And she got this beautifully puzzled look on her face, and she said, hmm, I, I never thought of that. And she felt that working as a psychologist for a non-profit organization, namely the school district, was somehow more worthy than selling cars at a dealership. Well, what this reminded us both of was a woman who came up to us at one of the financial conferences we were leading at a church. And uh, the, this was, I do believe, this was in, um, it was either in Texas, it was Texas or or maybe it was Georgia. It might have been Georgia. I'm sorry, I don't remember. It's not important, obviously. A woman comes up to us um, during the uh, lunch break at a financial conference at a church, and she, um, she says, I wonder if you can help me. I'm, I'm feeling terribly guilty. Now, we know already that that is a precursor to uh, somebody explaining that they're making money, and they feel <laughs> that's what they're feeling guilty about. Yeah, we knew she wasn't coming to tell us she feels guilty because, uh, you know, she's a car thief or a murderer or a, uh, uh, a, uh, uh, a hold-up artist. We knew. And so sure enough, here's her story. She found a way to have wigs made that are incredibly realistic with human hair uh, with a, an amazing manufacturing process. And she was able to get these wigs made for her in the Far East. She had them made. She put up the money. She uh, got them brought. She shipped them to the United States. And who's her client base? Women who have lost their hair due to chemotherapy or some of the other medications that people sometimes are put on uh, that are important to take but who, that have a terrible side effect of causing the loss of hair. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, chemotherapy basically attacks all rapidly reproducing cells. Uh, 
and uh, obviously cancer is uh, caused by rapidly reproducing malign cells, but it, the uh, radiation therapy has no way of discerning between good cells and bad cells, and very few cells in the body multiply more rapidly than the cells in the hair follicles where the blood flow gets converted into the production of hair. And so uh, hair, hair basically stops being made and, uh, and as people suffer uh, the, the very, very sad loss of hair, which is uh, it's, it's humiliating and painful. So this woman comes up with fantastic wigs, affordable at a great price, and she makes her market women who've suffered from hair loss, and she, uh, she, uh, she has uh, clients at Sloan Kettering Cancer, Sloan Kettering Memorial Cancer Center in New York, and the uh, cancer, various cancer treatment centers in, uh, in the South, and she takes care of providing these things. Well, she says, uh, she feels terrible because now three times it's happened that somebody comes up to her and says you should be ashamed of yourself making money from people suffering the tragedy of cancer and hair loss. And she said she just doesn't know what to say. Well, I don't think I should necessarily take the time now to tell you how we answered her because I've got a feeling that every one of you happy warriors could have probably provided her with the answer every bit as well as we did. If I'm wrong on this, by the way, go to our website at www.rabbidaniellappin.com and there's a tab there, contact us. And uh, you should feel free to let us know if indeed uh, you would have wanted me to explain what we told her, but I, I have a feeling you all understood. And uh, the, the only thing I will tell you is that we did say, look, if the person who next speaks to you along these lines wants to, you should tell them, hey, I've got a good idea. I'm running a business. I'm securing these. I'm getting them. I'm making them available. I'm keeping the quality high and the price affordable. But if you would like to make them available on a nonprofit basis, please start a nonprofit You'll buy the wigs. I'm sure I'll be able to negotiate a special quantity price with you. And you provide them for free to patients. Each of us should do what we believe we can do best. So by all means, go ahead and do that. Uh, well, she's since reported to us that uh, all she gets is a, a humph and uh, they walk away. Nobody, nobody does that. But we're all, uh, we're all painfully quick, aren't we, to tell other people what to do with their lives what to do with their morality, what to do with their money. We're very, very quick about that. And the truth is that uh, nobody else has any right whatsoever to tell you what to do with the money that you make, not take, but make. And so, uh, so here we are. We encountered three instances in, in fairly quick succession, three instances of people feeling bad about making money. Well, two, two women, the, the car lady and the hair wig lady, and then, of course, uh, the lady professor at, uh, at uh, Stony Bridge, Stephanie Kelton, 
who, who says, yeah, of course you should be feel gu- feeling guilty if you make money because you're taking it. There's no such thing as making money. You are taking it. And this is very widespread, very widespread indeed. Uh, there are other instances of very similar things happening. But let me just of all, since I gave you the website where you can contact us, uh, www.rabbidaniellappin.com, let me also just uh, remind you that we get some great questions asked to us. And uh, if you're on our mailing list, you'll get a mailing every week called Ask the Rabbi. And uh, it'll be somebody asking us a question which we then answer, and you'll hear the question and the answer. We also published uh, uh, a whole bunch of these questions, about a 100 of them, along with the answers in various categories, financial, family, etc., etc. And uh, this is available uh, for instant download on Amazon's Kindle. So uh, here's what to ask for, or here's what to search for. Maybe just make a note of this because it's, it's not what you think it is. Uh, the name of the book is Dear Rabbi and Susan. That's right, Dear Rabbi and Susan. And uh, you will be able to get that in a download and read uh, how these questions are approached from a biblical standpoint. So maybe uh, go over to Amazon and uh, in the book section, search for Dear Rabbi and Susan. 101 questions. You can download that either onto your Kindle or even onto your phone or iPad or computer, whatever it is. What people write and tell us that they greatly enjoy doing, and it makes sense to me, uh, particularly, I mean, for anybody who, who likes a challenge or a puzzle, is you read the question and then you uh, shut the page of the book for a moment and just give a few moments thought to how you might answer the question. And then you can then read about how we did. All the questions are uh, real-life questions. They are things that challenge people in in very real ways. So uh, I think you will enjoy seeing the book. It's Dear Rabbi and Susan, 101 Questions, and you can download it from Amazon uh, either onto a Kindle device or onto any device that you use for reading e-books. Okay, the reason I think this is important enough uh, to devote a show to and to work on is because everybody uh, makes a living, right? Everybody um, finds ways. Everybody needs to make money, not take it, make it. Everybody needs to do that. And one thing I can assure you is that whether it's mountain climbing or making money, if you do not believe you can do it, it becomes incredibly more difficult. And not only being able to do it, but for any decent person, it's a question of doing so in a morally acceptable way. Because the general rule I can assure you of is that anything, any activity that you find morally questionable, you're not going to succeed at. Nobody can ever succeed at any activity that they consider to be in their hearts morally reprehensible. You just can't do it. And so if you believe, as many of the people I've been talking about in today's show believe, that the very act of making money requires absolution, that there's something wrong with it, that somehow if you were a nonprofit, oh, now you would be morally worthy 
But since you are trying to make a profit, well, profit is just another word for plunder. And so uh, that greedy rapaciousness, which is a part of your being, well, you buy into any of that, you really are not going to make money. So if you are experiencing any financial challenges, one of the things you really ought to look into deeply into your heart is, is there a part of you that has been successfully indoctrinated by secular culture into believing that somehow making money is reprehensible, that somehow making money is not really anything you're making. It is, after all, taking, and everybody knows taking is wrong. And so if on some tiny level inside the depths of your heart you believe that acquiring money is, even though you did so honorably and, and by exchanging for it your services or goods, nonetheless, somehow there's something not really good about it, well, that would have a lot to do with why you're not doing as well as you think you ought to be doing. And uh, you can absolutely count on that, by the way. Now, regular listeners uh, will already know that your rabbi, that's me, uh, am very skeptical. I'm very skeptical about studies, polls, research says, experts claim, uh, studies reveal. I'm very skeptical about all of that. I really am. But uh, sometimes they are more useful for showing what people are interested in. In other words, I didn't have trouble finding, and again, basic internet research, um, what do people in general think about business? And I found results, and again, I'm not saying that I think these results are accurate, but they are probably indicative. At the very least, the publications and journals that publish the things I'm telling you about no doubt thought that by publishing these articles and these ideas that they would generate uh, circulation, that they would increase audience size. So somebody thinks that this is good information. It's unfortunately, I cannot with any assurance say that it is false. I cannot say it's disinformation. And so the first thing I'm going to share with you is a study. And I mean, I could tell you it's from Zendesk and from Cone Communications and from Echo Research. It doesn't much matter. I don't really think there are a lot of places that have huge credibility. Uh, the, the difference would be, you know, when the research is done uh, by a company where there's real money at stake. And then, you know, they're not fooling themselves. Uh, an advertising agency sometimes does research. And uh, when, when somebody has skin in the game, when somebody has money at stake, they're a lot more careful. It's one of the huge problems with, um, with government prosecutions, by the way. Uh, ordinarily, a lawyer has money at stake. And so very often, people go into a lawyer and say, oh, I want to sue this guy. I'm going to ready to sue the pants off him. I told him I'm going to see him in court. And the lawyer says, look, um, I'm not going to take this on contingency. You're going to have to pay me because I don't think you're going to prevail. I really don't. And so finally, coolness begins to steal over 
the uh, plaintiff because money's at stake and you begin to realize, okay, in federal and state prosecutions, the prosecutors are government lawyers and they have nothing at stake. They can prosecute somebody for something. They can even discover, as in several cases I personally know about, they can even discover that the person they're prosecuting actually was not guilty of this. And for reasons of um, political prestige and for various other reasons having nothing to do with law or with uh, justice, they will not stop the prosecution. And it can cost millions of dollars worth of fees, but it doesn't make any difference because they're government lawyers. Whether they succeed in their prosecution or not, they still get paid. That's what happens when people do not have any skin in the game, where there's no money up at risk. And uh, I honestly, I'd really like to see a rule, fat chance, right? You're going to laugh at what I'm going to say, and, and you're going to say uh, Lappin must have been smoking something. But I haven't, uh, you know, other than perfectly good cigars, not of the Cuban variety. And, uh, and, I, and I'll tell you what I'd like to see is that government prosecutors – um, would have to pay a penalty, a small percentage of the costs involved when they lose a prosecution. And, and it's, it's, there's got to be something to bring justice. There's got to be something that establishes some form of risk. If you launch a malicious prosecution against a citizen with the full power of the United States government behind you, there's got to be some downside when a court throws it out. You can't destroy people's lives and then, you know, carry on going, go to your tennis club as if everything is normal. Uh, that's just plain evil. That's all there is to it. So at any rate, uh, here's a study and a survey. And as I say, the people who publish the survey do not have any money in it, so I don't know. But for what it's worth, and I do think it's indicative, even though I won't buy the numbers, but the numbers say 94% of consumers think that businesses must, quote, give back to society. 94% of consumers think businesses should. Well, look, I don't doubt for a moment that if I walked in to a uh, 12th grade in almost a, any American public high school and I spoke to the students and I said, who of you here think that businesses should not just be about greedy profit, but they, they should be giving back to the community, I have no doubt that I could get a rate of 94%, probably more, with the teacher being the first. It would take a, a much more thoughtful way of framing the question, and it would certainly require very thoughtful people to bring about a more balanced response. Um, look, to, to put it bluntly, a, uh, and I don't, I don't even have to apologize for this. This is just a reality. A business has the responsibility of making a profit for its owners, whether it's a privately held business owned by mom and pop or whether it's a publicly held company owned by shareholders and people who have their 401ks and their uh, retirement plans all invested in various stocks, the company has the responsibility of making 
a return, a profit for its owners. That's it. Now, the people who work for the company, now, like all the rest of us, like everyone, they have an obligation to give charity, obviously, as individuals. But the idea that the corporation has placed upon it the responsibility to do things for which very often politicians made rash promises, that's very wrong. And the end result is poverty. The end result is the destruction of an economy. I'm not speaking exaggeratedly here in any way whatsoever. This is not hyperbole. If you start placing on corporations uh, obligations and responsibilities for which they were not formed, you're going to ultimately weaken and destroy. Uh, now, when I say uh, it's wrong of corporations to do anything other than try to make money for their owners, uh, of necessity for a corporation or a company or a business to succeed, it's got to also make the lives of its workers and its employees bearable because otherwise they won't want to work there. So you need a lot of moving parts to make a business work. Right? That's one of the reasons that, uh, that as soon as a company begins to grow, one of the very first things they do is hire somebody. I hope they don't call them human resource people. Don't do that, by the way. If you're, in a, if you're an entrepreneur with a growing company, please don't use that term, human resource. I mean, that, that reduces people to the level of, uh, of, of cows and, 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 uh, and sheep. Basically, they're just resources for the business. No, that's not how a successful business looks at its employees. They are vital partners in the business, and their uh, wholehearted participation is absolutely essential. Um, I, I stopped at a Dunkin' Donuts at an airport early one morning recently, and uh, I was astounded. The young woman who served me um, had a scowl on her face. She didn't, not only didn't she smile, she didn't say thank you. She didn't say, she, she was monosyllabic. She acted as if I was some kind of ruthless enemy, disturbing her, interfering with her tranquility, and causing her all kinds of trouble. I mean, she could not have radiated more resentment had she tried. And just as an experiment, when I landed at my destination, I stopped at a Dunkin' Donuts there as well. And um, I was served again by a young woman who, in this case, uh, she cheered me up. She had a smile on her face. She, uh, she greeted me happily, and she took care of my needs in a warm-hearted kind of a way, and she wished me a good day. And I, I went away happy and smiling. After the first encounter, I went away miserable. I, I don't have the time to write letters to, to companies. So I didn't write to Dunkin' Donuts, and, you know, there was no form there for a customer survey or anything. And even if there was, I'm, I'm dubious about whether anything would have happened. But, and I'm not sure they could do anything about it. You know, maybe they're pulling from a, uh, an unmotivated uh, workforce base. I don't know. But I do know that it definitely has an impact on your business, how the people who work for you 
conduct themselves and how they interact with your customers is hugely important. So um, it so happens that uh, good human interaction is also good for business. And that's why I've often said that uh, working for a successful company is really one of the best educations you can possibly give a young person. Yeah, let them work. Let them work for a company uh, more valuable, honestly, more valuable than than two years at a junior college. Rather, two years at a company, a profitable, successful company, you will learn a whole lot more about everything: money, life, work, econ economics, everything. Uh, uh, whereas at the, the junior college, you will more likely be insulated from reality. Learn how the world really works? Don't think you're going to get that at a university or a college. Very unlikely. That you will get working for a successful business. So, uh, so there it is. A very large proportion of consumers think businesses should give back. That's exactly the wording, by the way. And uh, my question on that is, if you think that a business giving charity is called giving back, what was the business doing while it was making its money in the first place? Obviously taking, which brings us back to the professor at um, Stony Brook University, the professor of economics who says, yeah, you don't make money, you take money. And she believes that. Clearly, anybody who says that businesses should give back are doing exactly the same thing and, and believing exactly the same thing. By the way, for if you are more interested in this, uh, you should go to the website at rabbidaniellappin.com, okay? And at rabbidaniellappin.com, you will find resources, and you can even look for them in the store under finance. You will find resources that can truly give you a mental reset. They can really reset your entire mental software on how you think about money and business. Because as long as you are filled in your heart, it may be deeply implanted, but as long as you have a, a, even a subconscious lingering resentment of people who have money because they've got and you don't and they must have taken, they made it hard for you to succeed, as long as deep in your heart you have that, you yourself are forever handicapped in your own financial success. And if, if you want more information on that, please go to rabbidaniellappin.com and take a look in the store in the various resources to help you improve your ability to increase your revenue, to grow your earnings, no matter what you do, whether you have a business or whether you're an employee, there are key strategies that have been employed by the people of Israel for thousands of years in good times and in bad and in generous and hospitable countries and in tyrannical regimes. There are strategies that Jewish people have deployed for being good with money and there's absolutely no reason why you cannot learn to do exactly the same. So all of that at uh, rabbidaniellappin.com. You can have a look around there. And uh, you can also make sure that you receive our mailings by being on our mailing list. Uh, you can also read past episodes of uh, various things. And you can also take a look at our television show, uh, which you can actually see online. You don't even have to 
have cable service to be able to see it. You can see it online as well. So all of that at www.rabbidaniellappin.com. Um, what else do people believe? Well, they believe that nonprofits are virtuous and noble. For-profit is inherently morally flawed. People really believe that. The result is that um, you are now barraged by an absolute Niagara-like cascade of companies and products that assure you that they will give X amount to charity for everything you buy. Uh, you want to buy a pair of shoes at Tom's? Well, they'll give a pair of shoes to poor people. Uh, you want to buy a pair of uh, sunglasses at uh, at a uh, at a sun at a, at a an eyeglass place called Warby Parker? They'll donate a, a pair of eyeglasses to somebody for everyone you buy, uh, and so it goes. Uh, Bono started a company called Red. Uh, you can buy high tech items there, but uh, some of the profit they make will be given to organizations that fight AIDS. As you can imagine, it's, it's been around a few years. So all of this uh, goes on all the time. Surely this is a wonderful thing. Isn't it nice that companies are becoming sensitive to the needs of charity? My dear friends, I do not want you to feel that I am a Grinch. I don't want you to feel that I'm always grumbling about nice things. I don't want you to feel badly about me, but if it's a choice of all those things or telling you the truth, then I'm afraid that at whatever cost, I have to tell you the truth. The truth is that it is wrong. Not strategically wrong, because that I don't know, but it is morally wrong for a company to give to charity. Really? How can that be? Well, if it is a privately held company and you are the owner of your company and you want your company to give to charity, go for it. It's your company. Go for it. However, I would think that you would be behaving more morally if you would give charity out of your take-home pay and rather reduce the price of your goods or services to your customers. In other words, if you're going to give $2 to charity for every item I buy from you, why not lower my price by $2? Help me that way. Am I not worthy of help? Am I somehow, by virtue of being a customer, I am somehow in a different category from charity recipients? You don't know what my needs are. Maybe I had to sacrifice a little bit to buy your product. So I ask you, by what right do you charge me more for my product and essentially force me to subsidize and underwrite your virtue? Maybe I don't want to support Greenpeace. Maybe I don't want to support PETA. There are a whole lot of charities I don't want to support. And so surely the thing to do is lower the price of, my, of the product I'm buying. Let me decide what to do with that extra $2 and decide which charity to give it to if I want to give it to charity at all. You see, 
why should serving your customer be less important than serving, quote, the charity? You'll remember this is what that lovely young lady who worked at a car deal, works at a car dealership, that's what she was feeling, that serving the underprivileged, misbehaved students that made her burn out at a public school, somehow that was doing something virtuous. But serving people buying a car, well, that is clearly not helping. Why? Why? And so on what moral basis do you, as the owner of a business, decide to essentially charge me more than you need to so as that you can give some of that money to charity? And that's in a privately held company where you are the owner. Where it's a publicly held company, I think it's even more immoral for the company to give charity. Because we are the owners. We count on the investment in your company for our income. We count on the dividend. And so to take money that should have gone to us, the owners, the shareholders, and to give it to whatever char- – I don't care what charity is. It makes no difference. In any event, you have no right to use our money for your feel-good purposes, for you to don a mantle of virtue by giving away corporate money. It isn't yours. Your money is what you get paid to run the company as a CEO or as a CFO or as a, uh, a line manager or whatever it is you're paid to do, fine. Take your money and do what you like with it. You want to give it to charity, you can give it to whatever you want to do. But on what basis do you take earned revenue of the corporation, not use it to grow the corporation, not use it for dividends to owners, but to give it away to charity? On what possible basis do you do that? And uh, the answer is none whatsoever. There is no morality in that at all. Now, please note that I am not suggesting to you as a business professional, if you are an entrepreneur or a business professional, I'm not telling you don't do that. I'm saying it's a very questionable morality. However, I am not at all sure that it doesn't bring customers. Because in today's environment, where people are so materialized, where all Judeo-Christian-based models of virtue have been stripped from public life, people are desperate for anything that makes them feel good. Hence, the obsession with environmentalism, taking care of the earth, taking care of the environment. People will put up with any kind of inconvenience and any kind of cost if they are told, oh, you're helping the earth, you're helping the environment. Because there is very little else that people do that provide them with virtue. And so even the process of buying something which makes you feel good makes you also feel guilty. Because if you have no virtue structure in your life through tithing, through charity, through good works, through caring for, quote, the widow and the orphan, If you're not doing anything like that, and talking of cars, uh, one of the churches of which I'm very fond has a weekly car repair night. It's a huge church. And uh, all the people who are skilled at repairing cars come with their tools on one night a week. And all the people who are struggling to keep 
the old clunker working for one more winter can bring their cars over and just as an act of goodness the folks in the church will do whatever they can to keep your car healthy and running a little bit further and right many many of us do try and nurse our cars for just you know don't please don't fail on me you know i know you're 14 years old but please just give me another few months i i can't deal with a big car repair right now uh, i can assure you that the guys who are doing that do not feel that they are consumed by an obsessive panic driven need to feel virtuous and i do accept that a god implanted mode inside each and every one of us is a need to feel that we care for others, that we give others, that we're not entirely selfish, that we're not just takers, that we are makers. And so, uh, yeah, people who are doing that uh, probably do not feel a need to patronize companies that give, oh, part of the proceeds of your sale or your purchase will be given to charity. Uh, they probably don't care about that. I wouldn't be at all surprised if many people do. I don't know the answer, but uh, since... So many companies do it and, uh, and feel very virtuous doing it. I have to assume that it does bring them business, right? Because they're not doing it for anything else other than to improve the viability of the company. In which case, you might say, well, maybe that's the moral justification of, uh, of giving money from the corporation to, to various charities. It's just like advertising or it's a marketing expense. And uh, the truth is, you, you probably do have a point uh, saying that. However, uh, that this is a, an unhealthy trend is without doubt. For a business to be incapable of standing up, looking its, its antagonist in the eye, and saying, we are doing good in society by making wigs available, by making cars available, by making plumbing services available, by making accounting and bookkeeping services available. We are doing good. We don't need to expiate the sin of taking money by giving to charity. No. If we choose to give to charity, we'll do so as individuals. The company is a force for good in society as any, or I should say, most profitable businesses are. Uh, there are exceptions, by the way. Um, I think that uh, pornography businesses are exceptions. I think that uh, therapists and uh, lawyers that specialize in encouraging people into divorce, and yes, there are places like that. There are people and institutions and organizations like that. I don't think they're doing much good for anybody. But um, uh, for the most part, a profitable company is doing good for society. And the woman who believes that uh, making money doesn't exist, that it's always taking money, where does that come from? Uh, well, once again, my friends, the opening words of the book of Genesis in the Bible is, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Ancient Jewish wisdom points out that it could just as easily have said, in the beginning, God created everything. He created all the physical reality around us. End of story. Why the terms heaven and earth? And the answer is because heaven always speaks of the intangible. Heaven always addresses the idea of the spiritual. Earth is earthy. It's real. It's thing you, it's thing you stand on. It's tangible. In the beginning, God created two aspects of reality, the spiritual and the physical. 
And that is what the opening sentence of Genesis teaches us. And uh, God explains that if we lose sight of that and we begin to see the world as only physical and only material, we will very quickly find ourselves sliding down the slippery slope of self-destruction. And uh, yes, the woman professor at Stony Brook, look, uh, yeah, if money is not spiritual, because there's no spiritual in the world, right? Everyone's been conditioned since the 1960s that we live in a world only of tangible physical materialism and that we are not spiritual creatures touched by the finger of God. We are nothing but sophisticated animals. In that case, money is not spiritual. Money is also physical. And the general rule of anything physical is that it cannot be in two places at the same time, right? If I have my cell phone and it's in my pocket, it cannot be in your pocket at the same time. If I look and the cell phone is no longer in my pocket and it's in yours, you took it from me. That's what happened. Similarly, if I have money and now I don't have money anymore, I have a pair of shoes instead of it, but my money is in your pocket, you took the money. You didn't make the money, you took the money. All of that is a completely logical and inevitable result of a materialistic view of the world. And so let's try and remember God created heaven and earth in the beginning, physical and spiritual. And keeping that in mind can go a long way towards helping us from falling into very destructive traps. My friends, I wish we were able to go on a little longer for today. There's so much more on this topic I want to tell you, but fortunately, a lot of it is in the audio programs and the books you will find at rabbidaniellappin.com. I also think you'll particularly enjoy... Uh, the book called uh, Dear Rabbi and Susan, 101 Questions. And you can get that on Amazon in a Kindle download. And, um, and that really pretty much brings us... Oh, by the way, also remember at my website, www.rabbidaniellappin.com, remember, please, uh, drop me a line. Say hello. Let me know how you enjoy it. You can also um, do, do so on Facebook, uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, or on Twitter at Daniel Lappin. Love to hear from you and love to know what you're thinking. Uh, until next week, I want to wish you a week of good times. Good times in your relationships with your family, with your friends, good relations with your faith, and yes, with your finances as well. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.